what these private prison companies have in mind, of course, are their bottom line and the abuses and the heartbreaks and the tragedies that we see are the unfortunate result of that. These were the words of Eunice Cho, a member of the American Civil Liberties Union, also known as the ACLU, as is documented in the Vice News YouTube video titled, New Ways Private Prisons Are Making Billions, System Error. This quote aptly sums up the harsh reality of private prison companies and why they will sacrifice the rehabilitation, the well-being, and even the lives of their inmates in order to maximize their profits. For these reasons, I call upon all those listening to this podcast to advocate for the abolition of private prisons. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. What is the purpose of prisons? Are they institutions designed to punish individuals who have committed crimes? Are they facilities dedicated to trying to rehabilitate criminals who have made mistakes in their past? Or are they money-making machines that exponentially increase the wealth of those people in control of them, seeking to consolidate their fortunes off of the incarceration of other human beings? As it turns out, there is unfortunately an unhealthy amount of private prisons littered throughout the United States that are committed to doing just that, making a profit off of the imprisonment of others. I firmly believe that not enough has been done to limit the power of private prisons and that we all must band together to ensure that all private prisons that are financially benefiting from the incarceration of their inmates should be abolished. It has been well documented, particularly in Carr Gotch and Vinay Bastille's article in the Sentencing Project titled Capitalizing on Mass Incarceration, U.S. Growth in Private Prisons, that the number of people that are incarcerated in private prisons increased five times faster than the total prison population from the year 2000 all the way until 2016. Over a similar time frame, the proportion of people incarcerated in private immigration facilities increased by 442%. These statistics support the implications that, for private prisons, keeping people locked up and getting more people imprisoned are strategies in order to maintain the profits that private prisons gain from all of the prisoners that they hold. When private prisons begin to profit off of the mass incarceration that is so prevalent in the United States nowadays, dangerous conflicts of interest are bound to arise. For instance, as is explained in John Swain, Oliver Lalland, and Yana Kasperkevich's article in The Guardian titled, U.S. Justice Department announces it will end the use of private prisons. A study that was conducted by the Department of Justice found that for-profit prisons are more likely to endanger the rights and security of their prisoners. Former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates even concluded that private prisons do not provide the same level of resources correctional facilities, and programs, and they do not save substantially on costs. Unfortunately, when it comes to making money, powerful individuals will be willing to subvert rules and regulations in order to maximize their profits. 
As is highlighted in Pablo Ross's AFSCME article titled The Case Against Private Prisons, Why Outsourcing Public Safety Puts More Communities at Risk, Laura Barnes, someone who worked in a prison controlled by CoreCivic, one of the largest private prison companies in the United States, confirmed as much when she declared that, quote, in the private prison setting, safety didn't come first. My radio, for example, didn't work in half the units, and we weren't issued OC spray or staff vests. We didn't have things to protect us. In the public sector, we get those things. We get upgraded radios, stab-proof safety vests, OC spray. It's a safer environment. End quote. This is why it is irresponsible for the American government to condone the existence of private prisons. Whether you believe that prisons are designed to punish or to rehabilitate, one idea that I believe we can all agree on is that prisons should be dedicated first and foremost to serving our justice system, not to making as much money as possible. Historically, the incentive for private prisons to turn a profit, trumping any efforts to rehabilitate prisoners, has existed since the inception of private prisons in the United States. As Shane Bauer explains in the Time article titled The True History of America's Private Prison Industry, quote, Louisiana first privatized its penitentiary in 1844, just nine years after it opened. The company, McHatton, Pratt, and Ward, ran it as a factory, using inmates to produce cheap cloves for enslaved people. One prisoner wrote in his memoir that as soon as the prison was privatized, his jailers laid aside all objects of reformation and reinstated the most cruel tyranny to eke out the dollar and the sense of human misery. Much like CoreCivic's shareholder reports today, Louisiana's annual penitentiary reports from the time give no information about prison violence, rehabilitation efforts, or anything about security. Instead, they deal almost exclusively with the profitability of the prison. End quote. The personal account of this prisoner reveals that the privatization of prisons actively hurts the capacity of prisons to effectively rehabilitate their inmates. If prisons make money off of the exploitation of their inmates, then they have little incentive to transition them out of the stranglehold of the criminal justice system and pursue serious rehabilitation efforts. According to Bauer, quote, like private prisons today, Profit, rather than rehabilitation, was the guiding principle of early penitentiaries throughout the South. If a profit of several thousand dollars can be made on the labor of 20 slaves, posited the Telegraph and Texas Register in the mid-19th century, why may not a similar profit be made on the labor of 20 convicts? The head of a Texas jail suggested the state open a penitentiary as an instrument of Southern industrialization, allowing the state to push against the overgrown monopolies of the North. Five years after Texas opened its first penitentiary, it was the state's largest factory. 
it quickly became the main southern supplier of textiles west of the Mississippi. Prison privatization accelerated after the Civil War. The reason for turning penitentiaries over to companies was similar to states' justifications for using private prisons today. Prison populations were soaring, and they couldn't afford to run their penitentiaries themselves. The 13th Amendment had abolished slavery except as punishment for a crime. So, until the early 20th century, Southern prisoners were kept on private plantations and on company-run labor camps, where they laid railroad tracks, built levees, and mined coal. Former slaveholders built empires that were bigger than those of most slave owners before the war. Nathan Bedford Forrest, the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, controlled all convicts in Mississippi for a period. U.S. Steel, the world's first billion-dollar company, forced thousands of prisoners to slave in its coal mines. Leases went to extreme lengths to extract profits. In 1871, Tennessee Lisi Thomas O'Connor forced convicts to work in mines and went as far as collecting their urine to sell to local tanneries. When they died from exhaustion or disease, he sold their bodies to the medical school at Nashville for students to practice on, end quote. Private prisons, quite literally, served to empower the heinous reign of terror of Nathan Bedford Forrest and the Ku Klux Klan, perhaps one of the most egregious examples of how closely intertwined private prisons truly were with systemic racism in the United States. Bauer draws on his personal experience, explaining how, while core civic prisons aren't as brutal as labor camps that were under convict leasing or early 20th century state-run plantations and controlled by the likes of Forrest, quote, they still go to grotesque lengths to make a dollar. I saw this firsthand when, in 2014, I went undercover as a prison guard in a core civic prison in Louisiana. There, I met a man who lost his legs to gangrene after begging for months for medical care. CoreCivic was often resistant to sending prisoners to the hospital. Their contract required that outside medical visits be funded by the company. Educational programs were axed to save money. To keep costs low, guards were paid $9 an hour, and oftentimes there were no more than 24 on duty, armed with nothing but radios, to run a prison of more than 1,500 inmates. The prison was incredibly violent as a result. In a four-month period in 2015, the company reported finding some 200 weapons, 23 times more than the state's maximum security prison. I knew one inmate who committed suicide after repeatedly going on hunger strike to demand mental health services in a prison with only one part-time psychologist. When he died, he weighed 71 pounds. Private prisons, according to a 2016 Department of Justice study, are consistently more violent than their already dismal public counterparts. Yet, while we went through training to become guards, we were taught that if we saw inmates stab each other, we were not to intervene. 
We are not going to pay you that much, our instructor told us. Our job was to simply shout the words, stop fighting, thus protecting the company's liability and avoiding any potentially costly harm to ourselves. Our job, after all, was to deliver value to our shareholders. If them fools want to cut each other, the instructor said, well, happy cutting, end quote. This is such a deeply disturbing admission of negligence on the behalf of private prisons that ought to compel all of us to action to abolish private prisons once and for all. We must act quickly, however, because CoreCivic and many other private prison companies are already deeply entrenched in American society. Private prison companies have been reported to influence legislation to increase the number of prisoners and to elongate prison sentences. The very fact that private prisons are lobbying for more prisoners to be held for longer periods of time speaks to the fact that they cannot be trusted in positions that are at least partially designed to rehabilitate and reform inmates. These conflicts of interest are simply too astounding for us to ignore and before private prisons become too deeply ingrained in American society to be uprooted, we must work together to eliminate them. After all, as history demonstrates, the capacity of the American people to eliminate private prisons is very plausible. There was a time when private prisons were successfully eliminated. As Bridget Sarabi and Edwin Bender explain in their prison policy initiative work titled The Prison Payoff, quote, As private enterprise took over more prison systems, corruption became even more rampant. According to an 1867 report for the New York Prison Association on Penal Methods throughout the U.S., not one institution in the country considered rehabilitation a priority. Both public and private prison conditions throughout the country were abominable. The reports detailed abusive punishments, crowded cells, horrifying working conditions, and corrupt and poorly trained guards throughout U.S. prisons. By the early 1900s, the conditions in U.S. prisons had become so atrocious that a new movement for penal reform succeeded in gaining public support. Private prisons were outlawed, end quote. The American people's unwillingness to accept the dehumanizing and unjust conditions of private prisons led to their abolition in the early 1900s. This truly was a progressive movement for the American people that underscored the power ordinary American citizens truly have in calling on lawmakers to implement positive, fairer change. Private prisons should have remained outlawed. However, they would be revived by United States President Ronald Reagan decades later. As Michaela Linder describes in the Bancroft School Unleashed article titled Mass Incarceration Nation, The Truth Behind Reagan's War on Drugs, quote, in following the conservative belief of keeping government small, Reagan was an active supporter 
of the privatization of government programs and services. Reagan's dedication to privatization eventually developed into its own commission. Created in an executive order passed in 1987, Reagan's Commission on Privatization was devoted to identifying government programs that are not properly the responsibility of the federal government or that can be performed more efficiently by the private sector, end quote. Linder elaborates on how the principles of privatization were incredibly damaging to the criminal justice system by describing how, quote, Reagan's plan to privatize the penal system had begun long before the development of his commission on privatization. Since Reagan lacked credible examples of successful privatization attempts, Reagan intended on making the prison system into the ideal example, which would strengthen his pro-privatization argument. Unbeknownst to the public, Reagan's privatization plan began with the orchestration of the war on drugs and quickly spread across the country, end quote. Reagan essentially pushed for the privatization of prisons in order to provide a credible example for why privatization should be adopted in most aspects of American life. However, seemingly in order to justify the existence of private prisons, Reagan, according to Linder, quote, launched the war on drugs with the intent of creating a wave of mass incarcerations that would cause a failure of the existing prison system, ultimately leading to the development and growth of the private prison industry. While Reagan claimed to have launched the war on drugs to protect society from drug abuse, there was an overwhelming lack of statistics to support his claims. Between 1974 and 1982, the climate regarding drugs in America was relatively calm, with 0-2% to of Americans identifying drugs as the nation's most important problem. End quote. Linder posits that, quote, well aware of the financial strain put upon the penal system, Reagan intentionally increased prison populations in order to coerce states into privatizing their prison systems. Since there were no other cost-effective solutions to relieve the overcrowding created by the war on drugs, states had to begin privatization and were unable to voice concerns over the new direction the government began taking. This allowed Reagan to quickly institute a major aspect to his political agenda with no resistance from opposing sides. As Reagan began privatizing prisons, he also looked to continue growth within the private prison industry. In order to guarantee the continuation of Reagan's government privatization plan, Reagan and other conservatives developed a mutually beneficial relationship with lobbyist groups hoping to develop laws that would continue the era of mass incarcerations created by his war on drugs, Reagan joined forces with the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, a conservative lobbyist group that works with private corporations to develop model legislation and propose bills based upon the needs of their client, end quote. It should be noted that, as far as I can tell, Reagan never explicitly stated that this was his plan behind the war on drugs and the privatization of prisons. With this in mind, some of these claims made by Linder about Reagan's intentions, I believe should be treated as speculative. However, despite this stipulation, the argument regarding how Reagan reintroduced the privatization of prisons back into American society through the war on drugs is a compelling one. 
Reagan implemented legislation under the pretense of the war on drugs that significantly increased levels of incarceration, as Andre Douglas Pond Cummings illustrates in the William H. Bowen School of Law article titled All Eyes on Me, America's War on Drugs and the Prison Industrial Complex, quote, when President Ronald Reagan signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1986, he effectively criminalized drug addiction. This led to the mass and disproportionate incarceration of primarily non-violent drug offenders from disadvantaged minority populations, over 65% of whom are African American and Latino, end quote. Sarabi and Bender detail how, quote, Private prisons did not reappear on the American stage until the 1980s, when President Reagan led a renewed push for greater privatization of government services. Since the mid-1980s, a new breed of private prison operators has surfaced. With the support of tough-on-crime legislators and conservative think tanks, private prison corporations have carved a multi-million dollar niche in the government services market and codify their place in the public policy arena. End quote. This was a recipe for disaster. Reagan and his administration should have been well aware of how detrimental privatizing prisons would be to the goals of rehabilitation, considering the atrocious conditions that privatized prisons subjected their inmates to in the 1800s. Nevertheless, Reagan and his administration either did not learn from history or did not care, as their efforts to privatize prisons would proceed to repeat the monumental mistakes of the past. As Charles Kaiser recounts in the Guardian article titled, What's Prison For? Concise Diagnosis of a Huge American Problem, citing some of the research of journalist Bill Keller, quote, it was President Reagan who inserted the profit motive into the prison business, allowing the Corrections Corporation of America to pioneer the idea of privately run for-profit prisons. As Keller explains, since the new prison owners were paid the same way as hotel proprietors by occupancy, they had no incentive to prepare prisoners for release. Private prisons now house about 7% of state inmates and 17% of federal. End quote. Tony Platt's 1987 U.S. Criminal Justice in the Reagan Era, an assessment journal article from Justice, Comparative and Theoretical Issues, elaborates on how, quote, the private sector also penetrated the prison market in new ways in the 1980s. The exploitation of prison labor, which was banned nationwide before World War I, reemerged in the Reagan era. With a declining labor movement and growing fiscal crisis in the public sector, prison authorities successfully moved to pass legislation that would allow contract and peace price systems of convict labor. Today, more than half the states have set up such programs. U.S. Department of Justice, 1985. In Ohio, for example, prisoners get paid about 31 cents per hour to manufacture some 300 products, ranging from signs and maps to soap and state flags. 
end quote. In 13th, a documentary film directed by Ava DuVernay, the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC, which had been mentioned by Linder as a partner of Reagan's in his efforts to privatize prisons, is examined in the ways that it has blatantly written legislation that lawmakers associated with ALEC could implement that would benefit the corporate members of ALEC. Many of the laws that ALEC has written have perpetuated injustices within American society, such as the Stand Your Ground law that George Zimmerman used as a pretense to murder Trayvon Martin. Such injustices being perpetuated by ALEC is a reality perhaps best exemplified by Paul Weyrich, the co-founder of ALEC, who, as documented in 13th, declared, quote, they want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. End quote. CoreCivic, formerly known as the CCA, short for the Corrections Corporation of America, was explained in 13th by Lisa Graves, the executive director of the Center for Media and Democracy, to have been a member of ALEC for nearly two decades. The specter of influence that Weyrich still holds over politics remains considerable, even after his death, particularly through former United States Vice President and 2024 Republican presidential candidate Mike Pence. The political platform on which Pence is advocating to lead the nation on seems to be largely derived from the beliefs of Wyrick. As Jane Mayer explains in the New Yorker article titled The Danger of President Pence, quote, in 1979, during Pence's junior year in college, Jerry Falwell founded the Moral Majority to mobilize Christian voters as a political force. Pence voted for Jimmy Carter in 1980, but he soon joined the march of many Christians toward the Republican Party. The Moral Majority's co-founder, Paul Weyrich, a Midwestern Catholic, established numerous institutions of the conservative movement, including the Heritage Foundation and the Republican Study Committee, a caucus of far-right congressional members, which Pence eventually led. Wyrick condemned homosexuality, feminism, abortion, and government-imposed racial integration, and he partnered with some controversial figures, including Laszlo Pastor, a former member of a pro-Nazi party in Hungary. When Wyrick died in 2008, Pence praised him as a friend and mentor, and a founding father of the modern conservative movement, from whom he had benefited immeasurably, end quote. Prior to being converted to conservatism by Wyrick and the moral majority, Pence was a supporter of progressive Democratic United States President Jimmy Carter. It stands to reason, then, that the formative foundations of Pence's conservative beliefs were at least partially inspired by Wyrick and his influence. Through Pence and other influential politicians, Weyrich's influence on American politics is still very powerful. Graves, in 13th, elaborates on how, quote, Through ALEC, 
CCA had a hand in shaping crime policy across the country, including not just prison privatization, but the rapid increase in criminalization, end quote. CoreCivic had so much influence on American politics through ALEC that it was able to influence and incentivize policymakers to adopt the tough-on-crime policies that led to massive increases in the prison population in the United States and, thus, massive increases in the potential profits that private prison companies could make off of exploiting their inmates. Graves says as much by highlighting how Quote, Alec pushed forward a number of policies to increase the number of people in prison and to increase the sentences of people who, who are in prison, end quote. Much like the effort that Reagan's tough on crime and war on drugs policies had, Alec's policies seem to be intended to put more people in prison for longer periods of time, increasing not only the incentive for private prisons to exist, but also increasing the capacity of private prisons to exploit their inmates. Reagan wanted the United States to be a shining city on a hill. However, in actuality, under Reagan's presidential leadership, specifically in regards to his advocacy for private prisons, the United States has actively had a detrimental impact on other countries around the world. The Vice News YouTube video titled New Ways Private Prisons Are Making Billions, System Error, documents how, in recent decades, other countries around the world have experimented with private prisons following the example of the United States. Rob Allen of Justice in Prisons notes how private prisons have specifically spread to the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. While the United States still has a chance to reverse course and abolish private prisons, it may be difficult to simultaneously reverse the negative influence that the United States has had on some of these other countries in exporting its private prison system. Reagan wanted the United States to be a shining city on a hill. However, in order for that reality to be met, Reagan had to, at the very least, be a positive role model. Other countries did perceive the United States as a shining city on a hill, and thus, took morally reprehensible lessons from it. It is worth noting that United States President Joe Biden has, in fact, signed an executive order that directs the Department of Justice not to renew its contracts with private prisons, as is recounted by Char Adams in the NBC News article titled, Biden's Order Terminates Federal Private Prison Contracts. Here's what that means. While this is a promising first step, that Biden has taken to effectively rescind the American government's direct support for private prisons, it is just that, a first step. Much work will still have to be done if we truly hope for private prisons to actually begin to lose power in the United States. In fact, according to Adams, 
Fordham University School of Law professor John Pfaff even asserted that Biden's executive order was mostly just a symbolic attack on private prisons and mass incarceration. In actuality, as Pfaff notes, even though the American federal government will no longer be contracting private prisons, the executive order does not prevent state governments from writing contracts with private prisons in order to truly deal an effective blow to the private prison companies that have too long held a stranglehold on the American criminal justice system. More widespread and nationwide legislation would need to be implemented. Private prison companies are very deeply rooted within American society to the point that it has become difficult to disempower them. Case in point, as Lauren Brooke eyes in details, in the Brennan Center for Justice article titled, Trump's first year has been the private prison industry's best, while United States President Barack Obama's administration announced that it would end the federal government's reliance on private prisons in 2016, his presidential successor, Donald Trump, kept the federal spending for private prisons steady and helped their stocks recover after Obama's announcement. The GEO Group a private prison corporation, suffered a 39% drop in its stock price by the end of the day of the Obama administration's announcement about decreasing its reliance on private prisons. However, a day later, GEO Group CEO George Zoli, as documented by Brooke Eisen, stated in a conference call that, quote, there's been an overreaction to the news about the contracts. We think... In time, this will correct itself, end quote. This statement by Zoli, the head of a private prison company, essentially all but admits how deeply entrenched private prison companies have become within American society and how challenging it will be to oust them from power. Brooke Eisen even mentions how Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions revoked the Obama administration's initiative to phase out the use of private contractors to supervise federal American prisons. It will take more than an announcement by the Obama administration or an executive order from Biden to end the stranglehold that private prison companies have had on American politics for generations, since the Reagan administration at least in modern history. The private prison companies have proven to be very resilient, increasing their role in American society so that they will be more difficult to uproot. As the 13th documentary highlights, Alec introduced a bill called SB 1070 that gave police officers the right to stop anyone that they believed looked like an immigrant. CoreCivic was on the Alec task force that pushed for the implementation of SB 1070. SB 1070 financially benefited CoreCivic, which in Arizona held a federal contract to house detained immigrants by increasing the number of individuals held at immigration detention facilities. Graves aptly notes in 13th how, quote, they're called detention facilities, but they're really prisons for immigrants. That you call them a detention facility doesn't make them not a prison. They are a prison. They just have a different name, end quote. As Cho analyzes in the Vice News YouTube video titled New Ways Private Prisons Are Making Billions System Error, quote, what is happening is that these private prison industries are turning around and filling these same beds with people in immigration detention, end quote. 
Cho elaborates on how, quote, the Trump administration increased immigration detention beds by over 50% in four years. And what we saw was the administration handed out sweetheart deals to private prison companies, end quote. Brooke Eisen elaborates on how the Trump administration helped private prison companies gain more comfortable footing amidst growing calls for abolishing private prisons. Brooke Eisen, whose article is from January of 2018, illustrates how, quote, 65% of detainees held by the Department of Homeland Security are housed in privately run facilities. With the administration's plans to increase the capacity to hold undocumented immigrants behind bars, the private prison industry's revenues will surely follow suit. And in an unprecedented move in late 2017, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, asked for information from contractors who can provide additional immigration detention space in the interior of the nation, in major cities such as Salt Lake City, Chicago, Detroit, and St. Paul, along with an expected request for information on contractors who can provide additional capacity along the southern U.S. border in Texas. CoreCivic CEO Damon Heininger publicly touted the administration's move as a source of potential revenue to his company, noting in an August earnings call with investors, ICE expects the average length of stay for detainees to increase as a result of increased interior enforcement. While immigrants arrested at the border typically are detained for 27 days, those arrested in the interior of the country are detained for roughly 52 days. More days behind bars in their detention centers translates into more profits for the company. End quote. How did these private prison companies repay Trump for expanding their financial prospects? By supporting his 2020 presidential re-election bid and advocating for him and his like-minded supporters to remain in office. According to Noman Merchant, in the Washington Post article titled, Private Prison Industry Backs Trump, Prepares If Biden Wins, quote, Executives at the nation's two largest private prison companies have been donating large sums to President Donald Trump and Republican candidates with an eye toward the November elections that one of the corporation believes will lead to a rebound in its stock price, end quote. Merchant, whose article was published in August of 2020, illustrates how, quote, GEO Group officials gave six-figure donations to Trump's election campaign and inaugural committee, have spent millions on lobbying the administration, and held one company retreat at the Trump Resort in Doral, Florida. Core Civic and GEO stocks surged around Trump's inauguration, based on expectations that his administration would ramp up immigration detention, which it did. ICE was detaining a record 50,000 immigrants for much of last year, end quote. The solvency for private prison companies assured by the Trump administration have made the Biden administration's efforts to eliminate them largely unsuccessful so far. After all, as Casey Tolan states in the CNN article titled, Biden vowed to close federal private prisons, but prison companies are finding loopholes to keep them open. 
Biden's executive order that banned new private prison contracts with the federal government did not apply to immigration detention centers. As Graves had directly noted, quote, that you call them a detention facility doesn't make them not a prison, end quote. Through this detention center loophole, private prison companies have managed to continue to remain profitable off of the suffering of their inmates. One other loophole that companies within ALEC have used to get away with profiting off of the suffering of others is through monetizing probation and parole. While CoreCivic left ALEC after it came under heavy scrutiny for its role in advocating for SB 1070 through ALEC, the American Bail Coalition, as explained by Graves in 13th, is still a part of ALEC. Jerry Watson of the American Bail Coalition is documented in 13th as having said, quote, If we can help you save crime victims in your legislative district, you don't mind me making a dollar, end quote. However, that is precisely the problem. As long as individuals make a dollar off of the suffering of other human beings, the American people can never truly trust that these individuals have their best interests at heart. The Vice News YouTube video titled, New Ways Private Prisons Are Making Billions, System Error, reveals the human cost of private companies taking control of probation and parole services through the story of Mohawk Johnson, who was arrested on alleged battery charges at a Black Lives Matter protest. In the multiple years during which Johnson was awaiting trial, he was forced to wear a leg monitor and be subjected to recordings. Johnson would repeatedly be awoken by his leg monitor while he would be sleeping. Johnson's leg monitor vibrated so much while he was wearing it that he began to get scared of even his phone vibrating because he would think that the vibration meant that he was in some sort of trouble. Incarcerated individuals are actually forced to pay for their own leg monitors. In this same video, incarceration researcher James Kilgore reveals the startling reality that, quote, in many cases, you're paying a daily fee to be on an electronic monitor, and those would be $5, $10 a day, up to the highest I've seen is 47 end quote. Kilgore elaborates on how, quote, I've interviewed many black people who have been on electronic monitors, and they repeatedly talk about when they look at their ankle, they think of a slave ship. End quote. In 13th, educator and author Michelle Alexander declares, quote, How much progress is it, really, if communities of color are still under perpetual surveillance and control, but now there's a private company making money off of the GPS monitor rather than the person being locked in a literal cage? End quote. These are gross injustices and reflect just how insidiously private companies profiting off of the incarceration of others can superficially change their criminal justice objectives, like Alec did, in order to continue making money off of the suffering of other human beings. In 13th, formerly incarcerated activist Glenn E. Martin similarly states that, quote, when I think of systems of oppression, uh, historically, in this country and elsewhere, they're durable, and they tend to reinvent themselves 
and they tend to do it right under your nose. End quote. This is the fundamental problem with dismantling private prison industries. They have become so deeply entrenched within American society that they are difficult to displace. However, the American people have been renowned for their capacity to do the impossible, and ending private prisons would hardly be impossible. After all, the American people have already done it before, in the early 1900s. If we band together towards this common goal, we can do it again. We have established what the purpose of some of these private prisons are. However, it is now time to ask the much more forward-thinking and pertinent question of what should the purpose of prisons be? I hope that you will join me in answering this question by fighting for a world in which prisons do not try to keep people locked up for unreasonable amounts of time just to line their pockets. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton, where you will find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.